0: I have a tough time sitting around just watching TV, but I I don't have any trouble at all going out to the barn and building a fire in the stove, and just putting my feet up on a log or something and just sit there and look at my saddles, and I talk to them, I talk to all my saddles all the time.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio. And by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Packers Arnold, or Smoke Elser, and Eva Maria Maji, co-authors of Hush of the Land, A Lifetime in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Based on hundreds of hours of interviews, Hush of the Land is a memoir that chronicles Smoke's six-decade quest to protect wild lands by bringing thousands of people deep into the mountains of Montana, into the Bob Marshall wilderness on horseback. Readers will share in the joys and thrills of summer rides, harrowing grizzly bear encounters, fishing in clear mountain streams, and many nights around a campfire within some of the West's last wild lands and with the people who know those lands best. In Hush of the Land, Smoke also recounts how his testimony for the Wilderness Act and the fight to preserve and expand Montana's wilderness areas influenced his career as an outfitter and educator and gave him a voice at the center of Montana's conservation movement. Smoke Elser is a professional animal packer and a semi-retired instructor of wilderness outfitting and packing at the University of Montana, from which he received a 2023 Distinguished Alumni Award. His work as an educator and outfitter has been covered in National Geographic and in the PBS documentary, Three Miles an Hour. He is also the co-author with Bill Brown of Packing In on Mules and Horses. Eva Maria Maggi is a writer, social scientist, and packer, and teaches courses on wilderness issues at the University of Montana. Smoke, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: And Eva, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you. So, Smoke, your daughter wrote an introduction to this book, and in it, Eva, she mentions that you took Smoke's... Horse packing course or packing course, right? Tell me about those first moments when you met Smoke and you went through this class with him.
2: Yeah, so um, it was a really wintry day. I remember there was lots of snow um, on the ground. And I'm lucky enough to live in the neighborhood, so I just walked um, to the class. And I was really excited because I think before I even signed my <laughs> contract at the university, I signed up for Smoke's class. I really wanted to do that when I moved to Missoula. And so we I walked down through the snow to this house and or rather to the barn. And um, I remember when I walked in, I felt really at home because the barn, this old stone barn in the rattlesnake, looks very similar to the barn I grew up in in Germany. Oh, so wow. it's, it's like a, a very classic um, halfway built in the in the hill. Um, barn that uh, we often use for storage um, of, of apples or, or other goods. And so I felt very comfortable when I walked in. I said, oh, this is great and it's so old and it's something you don't really see often here. So um, yeah, and so when I saw him first, I was in, you know, a little bit intimidated, I have to say, because he has a big, you know you, you know big authority when, when, when he just stands there, but I also have I also didn't know, I don't think the extent of what he actually did. The his history life.
1: of smoke yeah. and what he did? Yeah,
2: I wasn't really aware of that. I was. I knew that he could teach me how to pack a mule, and that's what I wanted to learn. Um, and I know he was big in the backcountry horseman where I was um, for already 10 years before I met him. So I knew about him, but I didn't know about any of the other conservation um, work he has done and his incredible, interesting life story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was uh, just really excited, and I knew right away this is what I wanted to do, and I wanted to sit there and just listen to what he could teach me.
1: So. That's incredible. Yeah. Smoke, let's let's start way back. Let's talk about your origin story. How did you become a horse and a mule packer, and what what drew you to it?
0: Yeah, what I I come out to uh, to Montana to go to the school of forestry because I wanted to be a forest ranger. Well, I got there and, the, and the, the first thing I had to do is get a job in Helena, and I worked for the Helena National Forest, the Canyon Ferry District, and my job was to uh, haul the, the uh, force supervisor, Dunk Moyer, uh, haul his horse around to different trailheads. Because Dunk Moyer at that time, he liked to go into the backcountry and study the land that he was in charge of instead of just taking it for granted. So he went on a lot of trips. And one of those trips, I delivered his horse. His horse by the name was Sea Biscuit, which is, it was not a Seabiscuit. <laughs> not so but, fast. <laughs> yeah, not so fast. But anyway, I delivered that horse to uh, the Beaver Creek Trailhead out of Lincoln. And I pulled in there in, a, in a, an International Forest Service truck, uh, which was a, had a ramp and everything so I could load a single horse. And, of course, I was fairly new. I wasn't really doing a lot of horse work yet, but I started. Uh, Cloycey Mann in Helena taught me a lot. But anyway, I unloaded his horse, and we were waiting there, and here comes Tom Edwards, uh, him and, and about 10— Helena Wilderness Riders. These were businessmen out of Helena uh, who liked to go every year on a ride into the backcountry. And they always invited Dunk Moyer so that he could explain the forest practices in the backcountry and how the trails were maintained and so that they could learn more about how the forest was operated. And of course, they could give their opinions too, how how it was operated. So uh, anyway, out comes Tom Edwards with a bunch of guests. And uh, we uh, started to unload his pack string. I, Jack Redhair was his packer at that time. And I saw Tom there and I, I said, hey, I want to I wanna become a packer. Uh, how do I, can I get a job with you? And he said, no, Sonny. He said, you can't. I don't have time right now. He said, you come up sometime in the winter and I'll, we'll talk. He said, you just come up there sometime. So the next uh, winter, I drove up there, and of course, it was about four feet, four or five feet of snow, and the road was like a tunnel to the Whitetail Ranch, and I drove in there and parked, and and uh, him and Helen invited me in, and we sat down and started to talk, and he said, well, I'll put you on. You're, you've got a job. You come up here about the middle of May. Uh, there'll be a little snow in the ground here and there yet, but we got lots of work we can do. Uh, you can help oil saddles. But I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to pay you a dime for the first two weeks. I want to know how you work and what you know and what you can learn uh, about packing and about running a, a guest string of, of mules and horses. And that's how, kind of how I got started. And Tom, Tom gave me a lot. And I'd go out and work in the evenings and learn different knots and different ways to tie things on. I had some experience from a guy by the name of Cloycy Mann, uh, who was at the Canyon Ferry District. He was a trail crew foreman. And Cloyce was a really great guy. He taught me everything I could begin to want to know about horses. And he knew horses inside out. And, and I worked with him all of the time. Uh, but that's how I kind of, kind of got started.
1: It's interesting both of you described this moment when you Eva went into the barn and you were like I belong here I feel I feel right here and then Smoke you just described this feeling of seeing Tom Edwards come out with the train and was like I want to do that describe that feeling to our listeners what did you feel when you're like I'm I'm at home here what is that feeling like
0: Yeah it's it's a uh, it's an overwhelming feeling that uh, that strikes you all the way from your, from your feet to your head and it hits your heart. Uh, all of a sudden you you see, hey, I can do that and I want to do that. That's what I want to be the rest of my life. I don't care about being a millionaire or anything else. I just want to do that because it looks like it'll be interesting and it'll be fun and I'll meet a lot of interesting people.
2: Yeah, and I think it's less of a choice it's just kind of there's more of a feeling and it's not really a question anymore out of your control yep yeah Yeah. completely not a question anymore
1: yeah i want to kind of establish for our listeners your roles here these are your stories in hush of the land smoke but eva you helped to not only preserve these stories write them down um how did this process start? Who came to the other with the idea for this book? And what did this process look like for the both of you? Um,
2: so it started, so, you know, I walked into the barn and I sat there and um, Smoke introduced himself and, and started Teaching, and he's an incredible teacher. Uh, A lot of people, thousands of people, have have seen that before, but it's it's really impressive um, how he approaches people. Anyway, but he also adds his stories to his teaching, so it's a very active way of engaging your students. And the first story I heard, um, it's in the book. It was um, not so much a feeling of home; it was more a feeling of like a complete calling. I don't know if I had I haven't had that in a very long time, where I just sat there, I listened to these stories, and I said. That's what I'm going to do. I, like, I need to preserve these stories. I'm going to record them, and I've had experience with that from my PhD work. I've done a ton of interviews, um, uh, recording lots of different people, lots of different languages. So I was very comfortable with that. But I also knew that I wanted the the verbal stories, like the, the oral history, to be preserved. and um, so and I think the second or third class, I, I really I really had I was kind of intimidated. I didn't, you know, it's like, oh, I'm from Germany, random lady. Like, <laughs> why would you don't even know? You never met. Like, how would he talk to me, like tell me his stories? But I just I just had no chance, like no choice. I needed to ask that. I needed to go in and ask him and walk up and say, OK, hi, I'm one of your students. <laughs> uh, would you be interested in sitting down with me? I would just come and I would just record your stories. And um, and he was like, yeah, let's sit together and let's talk
1: about it. But um, yeah, what did you think about that smoke when she approached you with this idea? What did you? What were your initial impressions of that?
0: Uh, At first, I I I didn't think my stories were worth a darn. But uh, as time went on, we started. I started to talk about it, and she asked me the right questions, so that it led me into the into some of the trips that I handled, and eventually we did a lot of them. And uh, that's, that's how I felt. And I felt that, uh, yeah, this is kind of a little different, but I'll try it. I didn't know whether they ought to be saved forever, but I guess maybe some of them are, are worth it.
2: And I, and I was thinking about you know, how, I, how I would um, convince him to do this. And, but not only that, I think I also thought, okay, why do I want to actually have the, those preserved, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't think about the book at all. Like, that was not, not on my mind whatsoever. I just thought, oh, that would be so cool when we could, like, give that to people that never had a chance to actually go take a pack class mm-hmm. and preserve it for the younger generations, like, having them out even beyond our lifetimes and for people to just go and listen to them them and be inspired by them. so I just like I was just telling them I would just sit here and you just talk
1: about whatever you want. You're listening to a conversation with Smoke Elser and Eva Maria Maji. I'm Lauren Corn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Fact and Fiction, an independent bookstore located in the heart of downtown Missoula, Montana, providing books for all ages and supporting the literary community in Montana and beyond. More information can be found at factandfictionbooks.com. Eva, would you mind reading a couple of passages from Hush of the Land? I feel like there are a couple in there that I really want listeners to hear.
2: Great. Yes, would love to. The guest from New York was riding one of Howard's favorite mules. Just four and a half feet tall, Dodge City was narrow-built and really smart. We had brought him with a truck full of mules from Missouri two springs ago. His eyes were attentive but soft. We knew right away that we could pack and ride him and named him after the town of our favorite radio and later TV show, Gunsmoke. Usually, our guests rode horses, but when one went lame on the second day, Dodge City was our first choice howard had asked me to keep a close eye on the pair and they followed my string until dodge city stopped on the edge of the turn his long ears pointed up "You scenery loving son of a gun the guest yelled and laughed but was also scared to death because on every switchback the mule walked right up to the edge of the cliff stopped and swung his head side to side the sun was high the sky was blue and dodge city the mule from Missouri was taking in the scenery.
1: A few pages later, there's another scene that begins with Dodge City, Eva. Let's read that one and then talk about it. Sure. The guests from New York City
2: enjoyed riding the mule so much that he made Howard an offer he couldn't refuse on a trip in summer of 1963. An outfitter doesn't easily sell one of his best animals, but Howard was in the middle of preparing a trip to New York anyway, and the price was right. To celebrate Montana's 100th birthday, 305 ranchers, outfitters, Native Americans, and other individuals boarded a 25-car train carrying 70 horses and mules, a six-horse stagecoach and covered wagon, trick riders, and $1 million in gold nuggets. Lehman Rice and Word of Billings painted 146 nature and historical scenes on the 14,000 square feet of plywood that were mounted on the outside of the train. Over 30 days, the Montana Centennial train stopped at 16 major cities with a final parade in front of the US Capitol and the World Fair in New York City. Dodge City, the scenery-loving mule from Missouri, was the first mule to carry elk horns down Pennsylvania Avenue. The train showed the people what an act of Congress alone couldn't. Montana's wilderness was a place to visit for people all across the country.
1: Smoke, talk about the importance of not only this train, this trip from Montana to the Capitol, but also about the importance of wilderness to the story.
0: Yeah, at that time, we were just starting uh, really uh, getting into trying to get the Wilderness Act passed. Uh, The Wilderness Act started in the late 50s, and uh, in 1964, of course, it was passed by Congress. So it was pretty important that we showed livestock and packing uh, in particular to congressmen. And it was pretty important that we, on this trip, we went right to the White House and paraded right in front of the White House. And uh, we made a big circle there and then everybody gathered around, you know, and, and uh, President Johnson and a, a man by the name of uh, Mike Mansfield, who is well-known, Montana, uh, they come out and gave a talk. Uh, and, of course, uh, the president, uh, Johnson, he always wore a white hat, by the way, a white cowboy hat. And uh, they come out and gave a talk. And at the end of the talk, well, of course, everybody clapped. And uh, we had one person uh, on the trip, uh, Quigley. Uh, she was Miss Quigley, was the Miss Montana. And uh, she was in a rodeo rider. Uh, so she did tricks on her, on her horse, uh, but also dressed appropriately and had two pistols, one on each side. And uh, she drew those pistols out and fired them in the air a couple of three times. And uh, President Johnson <laughs> got such a kick out of that, he he laughed and bent over so far that his hat fell off and rolled down the steps right in front of the White House. And uh, of course, uh, she was detained. <laughs> and uh, of course, she didn't have bullets in there, they were blanks. Right, But it showed the country, the value of wilderness and recreation. And that recreation actually paid its way. Uh, These people put money into small communities like Ovando and Sealy Lake and Darby and those kind of towns uh, where they would never get any of the tourist money at all. It would all be in the big cities where they had motels and hotels and and that type of thing, good restaurants. So it showed the, the entire nation that recreation was an important part of Montana.
1: And when it comes to this intersection between wilderness and policy, Smoke, you've said in previous interviews that in order to protect true wilderness, you've got to get involved. Talk a little bit about that and how policy intersects your stories in Hush of the Land.
0: Yeah, I think you have to get involved, and that's a real important thing. I've had lots of senators and representatives in the Hills. And, uh, you know, they didn't understand it. Uh, uh, they didn't understand what we were doing. So it takes time and it takes, uh, that silent period of being able to sit by yourself and rely on yourself to survive in wilderness. Um, uh, and I think that's a, one of the most important things. I've had all kinds of centers in the hills. Ted Kennedy was one of them. Uh, and, is all he wanted to do is ride a horse, and he wanted to go as fast as he could. Uh, and he wanted to have the horse in the right lead and all those kind of things. Yeah, that doesn't happen in the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness is you let things take their own natural course so that, they ha- so that you get a feeling of the land and the wilderness itself. And I, we think that that's a real important thing. By the time Ted Kennedy left here, uh, he was tickled that he had a chance to ride a horse uh, at three miles an hour instead of five or six miles an hour.
1: What makes three miles an hour the best way to see wilderness?
0: That's because uh, you're sitting about five feet off the ground. You're letting the horse do the driving, is all you're doing is sitting there looking and experiencing the, what you're seeing. And I think that's a, the most important thing you can do in there. And uh, when you share that with another animal, it makes a whole lot of difference in how you appreciate what you've seen and what you're doing.
1: Yeah. You know, you write in the last chapter of the book, before the epilogue, about smoke, your decision to sell the packing business, this outfit, you write that wilderness had lost its awe. And with more and more people finding their way to Montana now, both in residential and recreational capacities, I'm curious about how you, Smoke, and you too, Eva, um, you're viewing these changes. How have ideas of wilderness, ideas of wild, of nature, of untrammeled land, how have they changed over this time, Smoke? Why has wilderness so lost its awe?
0: Yeah, it's lost its awe mainly because of our mechanization we have now electric bicycles. Uh, we have ATVs, uh, ORVs that run off the road and can go, can climb a tree virtually. You know, when, when you have that kind of recreation going on all around the wilderness, you really have to find the people that really want to be in wilderness. They want to feel wilderness. And, you know, one of the things I always did, I always collected their telephones. In the later years here, and when they had uh, these cell phone things, and I always collected their watches and their cell phones, put them in a box and locked them in the car before we left the trailhead. And I looked at my watch and I said, "From now on, you're on my time. Uh, you're on wilderness time."
2: I think the value of wilderness is even more important than it was. And I would not even say. I don't know if I would say that it lost its awe. I think it's um, maybe even more so because we get so much more distracted outside. So when we get there, it has a really intense impact on us. Like I take two students on um, on a pack trip in the Bob Marshall every summer for the last couple of years, and. I see their changes every trip. It's hard to get away. It's definitely very difficult. And especially on a horse, you, you get in pretty deep and you have to trust this horse so much um, more than you would have to do anything else. I think you have to just trust this horse, be able to cross this river, go along this cliff, not fall down. You have to really release. Uh, and I think that is such a gift. Um, and when you have to embrace it because you don't have a choice when you're in there for 20 miles, you, you get so much out of it. I think just to see that grounding happening from, from students is just incredible. So I do think we still have that awe. I think it's just that it is uh, much harder maybe for some people to get into it, right? It's much harder to keep horses. It's harder to actually, um, you know, go in and, and really experience it. But I think you can do it the same way, uh, maybe uh, hiking. But when you're sitting on a horse, you can actually look around and you're yeah. five feet off the ground and you can see so much more. You can actually see the, the mountains and the flowers and you don't have to look at your feet all the time and, um, and you get carried at three miles an hour. Um, there's a very special magical thing about that that you don't have with anything else, I don't think, in, in the woods that way. But of course, I'm also a horse person, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. biased.
0: Yeah. And, and now, you know, these days, my last few years, we were uh, attracting uh, really very important people that wanted to go to the wilderness because they'd had enough of the computers and the buttons they push all the time and sitting at a desk all the time. And all of a sudden, they they got out and were able to trust a horse. You know, I had lots of my guests uh, at Christmas time would send boxes of apples and carrots uh, to their horse, uh, Lupin or whatever horse they were riding at the time, Curly or Blaze or any of those, and they would send me the, the Christmas presents that I had to give to their horses, because they established a relationship between the animal, uh, the wilderness, and themselves, their own set, uh, personalities. So, uh, as towards the end of the uh, my, my period in the Bob Marshall, the, the guests were getting to where they appreciated wilderness much more than they did in the early days. In the early days, it was catch a big fish and shoot a big elk. In the later days, it was get the experience. Let's see what, let's get the wilderness interpreted to us.
1: I'm so glad you just used that phrase, Smoke, because it's a phrase that you use throughout the book. Interpret the country, interpret nature, interpret the wilderness. And it sounds like what you mean by that is kind of a triangulation between not only you, the packer, there's the horse, there's the guest, there's nature. Talk about that relationship and, and how you nurtured and fostered those relationships.
0: Yeah, we would go into the wilderness and and try to explain all of the little uh, uh, things that are really very small to people. Uh, and for instance, I had a, uh, one of the executives of the General Motors Corporation in the hills, and uh, she was riding a horse right behind me, and, and I... We rode into a thicket of, of spruce trees and it kind of swampy in there and damp. And I stopped and I said, hey, get, let, get off. I want to show you a flower. And this little flower, it's called a wood nymph. And it faces the ground instead of the sky. So she had to lay down on her belly and look up to see this flower laying on the ground. And uh, she was also the first time she had ever drank water out of a running creek. In those days, we could do that. And I love to show people and teach people the and interpret what the wilderness really was. Uh, the, it isn't just a uh, sit on a horse and go for a horseback ride. It's sit on a friend that you trust and see things that you'll probably never see again.
1: You were a packer and outfitter for over 50 years what do you miss most about being in the wilderness with your horses and the mules and the rest of your crew, that, that specific rush of, of the outfit?
0: All of it. Because I, jeez, I, every day I go out and I pick up a pack saddle at least every day uh, or a saddle. The fact it is on, let's see, Wednesday I'm going to start oiling saddles again. Uh, I just ordered uh, uh, two gallons of castor oil. And I'll put castor oil on all my saddles, rub them down. And boy, that'll be a tough time uh, for me because these are saddles. Oh, this saddle somebody rode. Uh, you know, here's another saddle that, uh, that Congressman Kennedy rode or here's another saddle that I rode for years. And uh, uh, it, it brings back so many memories. I have a tough time sitting around just watching TV. But I, I don't have any trouble at all going out to the barn and building a fire in the stove and just putting my feet up on a log or something and just sit there and look at my saddles. And I talk to them. I talk to all my saddles all the time.
1: From the conversation that we've had here today, is there anything you want our listeners to know? Something else uh, from the book, peripheral to the book, a- about your experience you want our listeners to know?
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, go to the backcountry and make your own stories. That's what I did. And I, I made my own stories uh, just by traveling the trails in the big prairie and into the desert.
1: That was Smoke Elser and Eva Maria Maggi, authors of Hush of the Land, A Lifetime in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, out now from Bison Books, an imprint of the University of Nebraska Press. Look for more information about Smoke and Eva at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.